Hello and welcome to Resident Advisors Exchange. This is our series of conversations with the artists, labels and promoters who are shaping the electronic music landscape. My name is Ryan Keeling and I'm the editor at Resident Advisor. So this week our guest is Apple Blim. Laurie Osborne was originally known as a key guy in the dubstep scene. Uh, this was because of the incredible label he ran with Shackleton called Skull Disco. They released a run of around 10 records and then stopped the label in 2008. Osborne went on to start his own label, Apple Pips, and with the label and his DJing, he's generally been all over the place musically. He's really into collaborating. He's turned in some great work with Peverless, Ramadan Man and Common over the years. And the occasion for our chat was his recent album, The Second Story on R&S. This one pulled off some incredibly complex and interesting club music. You can find our full archive of exchanges on residentadvisor.net and follow us on SoundCloud at ra-exchange. So an exchange with Apple Blim is up next. So a few weeks back, you released an album with Al, Second Story, that came out on R&S. Maybe you could start by telling us about the project, like how it came about and what its aims are. Sure, yeah. Well, I met Al, well, quite a few years ago now, down in Bristol, just through friends and music. I'd seen the name Al Tourette's on posters around the city and thought interesting name I wonder what that guy's like you know and finally met and, and got on really well had quite a quite an amusing first meeting where we were at a big house party and um I was playing some some techno Detroit stuff and there was someone on the sort of like the house party dance floor who was moaning and go and quite loudly and saying you know this is it's got no soul it's got no soul not like you know it's not like black music not like rock and roll and soul and like and i could hear al going well actually mate if this is black music and this is you know and i was like ah someone's defending the <laughs> the detroit flame you know for this this person's definitely got to be worth talking to so um we ended up yeah just hitting it off and yeah just bonding over i guess you know tunes techno I was studying, was I still studying at the time? Or maybe I'd just finished a place called Bath Spa University on a course which was is sort of, um, I don't like to use the word renowned, but it's, it's quite popular for sort of creative music and quite a lot of interesting people have kind of been through this course basically in the kind of southwest area. So even people like um, Addison Groove went there shortly before he realised that he didn't really need to be there because he kind of knew everything anyway, which was, uh, you know. And, yeah, so Al Tourette's, um, Luke's Anger, Vessel, Batu, Gatekeeper, Wedge, all these different people, you okay, know. So yeah. over various years, there's always there's always some interesting stuff going on. So I didn't actually know Al. Al had studied there, but he was like a year above me. And... Yeah, I guess we just started messing around on music through um, remix requests that I was getting and I felt like I wanted to do them with someone else um, because I wasn't that confident kind of um, technically and because we were kind of hitting it off so well and bonding over the over sort of um, shared music, which I guess like 
coming from the dubstep thing, most of my friends were all into kind of either bass music or dubstep or da da da, and they were a bit younger than me. Al kind of had had similar kind of like angles on stuff like techno and electro and and stuff like this. So yeah, we did a, we did a, a few remixes together, and they went well. There was one for um, Phonica Records, one for Oscar for for Luke Slater. Um, and they all got a really good response and we enjoyed working together. Mm. So I ended up kind of jamming more, put out a single on house music, you know, ages ago now. And then it was through that we, we were DJing together a lot. I was doing Apple Pips nights at Fabric and so on. And I was getting all, all my kind of people that I knew sort of local to me who were releasing on the label, getting them to play. So it kind of naturally evolved and eventually we ended up doing some gigs in Ibiza at We Love Space. And Mark Broadbent there had got me out a couple of times. A chap called Ryan O'Gorman actually booked me the first time. And we played, me and Al played, I got him out there for a live set one year. Then we got asked back again and we did like a back-to-back in like the main room of space, which was kind of like crazy trial by fire, you know, which was fun. So back-to-back live set? DJing that DJing, time. Okay. Yeah, and this was hence then, long story short, we, we kind of got asked back again the next year. And um, we just sort of thought, well, rather than doing another back-to-back, which we'd kind of already done, then it's like, well, we've done that. It's, it was great and it was fun. What can we do next? Um, and we thought, well, we've got these half-done tunes that we've been kind of tinkering on. Why don't we try and do some kind of DJ set that's a bit more than a DJ set. So originally it was just thinking about maybe running some beats or some little edits next to sort of just normal DJing, maybe with a bit of Ableton. And as we started kind of putting it together, we kind of realised we were making tunes and having fun with them. Why not just kind of carry on? And we kind of set ourselves a bit of a challenge, really. We sort of said to them, look, are you up for a live set? They were like, yep, definitely. You know, we got the booking maybe four or five months ahead of when we were going to be there. So it was like, right, we've got this time to do this, you know. So we did it. Yeah, I see. For me, I kind of have the project classed as like an attempt at a sweet spot between like club functionality and like experimentation. Mm. Is that like an assessment you'd go along yeah. with? Yeah, yeah, definitely. I think that's naturally the way it was kind of always going to go, I guess, from the stuff that we're into and, you know, both of our sort of styles, as it were, I guess. Um, I mean, you could, I think you could say that about Alex music anyway, kind of thing. It's kind of like sort of hyper sort of sound design, but also... You know, it has to be functional in terms of dancing. It's dance music, you know. So, yeah, it was it was definitely, you know, it's a lot of syncopated beats and broken beats and, and kind of swung stuff. It's not really, there's no real straight kick drum four, four by four stuff, you know, kind of on the album really. And so we weren't really sure how that was going to go down, I guess, live. I mean, I think we knew that people would dance because, well, you know, we like to make funky music but in a kind of traditionally house and techno club and night at space sure yeah you know we really didn't know what was going to happen um yeah people people stayed and danced and watched and you know it went down it went down well so we were kind of like enthused by that i guess you know yeah i see i mean is there anybody that you were maybe inspired by for this kind of like idea of making people dance with non-standard grooves is there anyone you think that's done that like particularly well, well? i think like the stuff that that we were listening to that we kind of met in the middle at, I mean, like, you know, I was playing me loads of stuff like Christian Vogel and, and Neil Landstrom and, and kind of all this kind of like, I guess, the underground of UK techno and electro. And then I was playing him stuff from, you know, the bass music world. So Digital Mystics and, and Rob Smith and, you know, Pinch and Pev were, were people that we 
truly bonded over. So we went and saw, I remember we went to Berlin to a substance which I played at regularly at Bergheim. And um, it was, I think it was Maller, Shackleton, who else? Um, maybe Distance and a few other people. And I think at that time particularly as well, that's what you kind of noticed about the music was a lot of the techno people were coming out and listening to it. And I think the reason they were also refreshed by it was the fact that it wasn't straight 4-4, four, four, you know, or straight four to the floor, I should say, you know. Mm. So there was a lot of swing and a lot of broken stuff and seeing it work in that club as well. You know what I mean? It's kind of like, obviously, I'd been seeing it work in, in places like Forward and DMZ, where it had grown from people more just standing and listening to then people really raving very hard to it. So you, you yeah. kind of realise that even though it's kind of this fairly, not a new style of rhythm, because obviously these rhythms have always been around, but, you know, people might initially come to a dubstep night or, or and go, what? and even me, when I first heard Digital Mystic stuff, it would be like, how do I move to this? This is, sure. this is weird. This is kind of not what I'm used to. But then gradually, obviously, you realise it's got just as much funk as anything else. So, yeah, we, we, we were kind of like meeting in the middle around this kind of stuff. And, and yeah, I guess it's not something like it's a conscious, oh, we're not going to do that. It's more kind of like, let's just follow it down the route that we want to go down. You yeah, know? no, so see. Rhythm-wise, you know? I guess this kind of um, inherent excitement and danger in pursuing these stars of music is like push it too far and you yeah. lose people. But like, yeah get it just right and you've maybe created something yeah. that like you know didn't exist in that form yeah before. i'm always surprised i mean like you know we've we played it in fabric a couple of times doing the live set as well and i mean i guess you're you always wonder whether a kind of you know a crowd that is perhaps more used to just going out on a saturday night and hearing you know constant four to the floor that they might be in some way feel not uh, you know <laughs> people feeling cheated it's almost like sort of like in the opposite way when I started to play 4-4 stuff instead of dubstep you know or mixing the two up people from the dubstep world would be shouting at you down the front going like what's this you know like they're, they're confused by the fact that it's not a rhythm that they wanted they paid their money for or whatever you know so I mean but but I was all we were always really pleasantly surprised it was kind of like you know people react with the fact that it's being done live and the fact that the owl's drumming and the fact that it's got this and it is funky you know so so yeah like um we played room two a couple of times and held the room and held the floor and people were really really sort of like you know shocking out kind of thing so yeah it's really encouraging do you feel like people have become less single-minded about that sort of thing over the last 10 years have attitudes opened up a little bit yeah, it's it's hard to say. I always wonder about this whether whether things change like that. I guess they must because it's like there's always going to be a core group of open-minded people, but then there's always going to be people that perhaps say like in the drum and bass era, maybe they only listened to drum and bass. And yeah, so that's kind of the classic example, yeah, isn't it? Yeah. They'd be annoyed if they'd got something else, you know. Or if you're going to a techno night and someone starts playing grime, and and people are like, you know, I've I've had that a few times as well around the world where it's like you're playing stuff that, and, and people are like. Play some techno, play some techno, you know. And it's like, sorry, <laughs> I'm kind of playing what I want to play tonight, so you know, just have to go with it. So I mean, I think there's always the open-minded, there's always the closed-minded, but I suppose it's kind of trying to bring the closed-minded people in. And I think perhaps now even the more closed-minded people are slightly more open to things, just because of, yeah, you've had you've had grime and dubstep opening up a different kind of rhythmic potential, and then you've got people who. Are more happy to kind of mix it up, I guess. You know, there's DJs, whether it's I don't know, One Man or Jack Master or Ben UFO or you know these kind of like DJs, DJs who appeal to young and old 
and they're kind of setting the scene for things and they might play, you know, R&B or house or techno or drum and bass or some noise music or, you know, so I think, yeah, I think people are a little bit more open to stuff, you know. Tell me a bit about how you guys would um, put together one of these wonky drum patterns. Is it just a lot of experimentation or are you kind of like setting up, uh, you know, compute program in a certain way? Is it algorithmic? It's just, I mean, you know, Al really is the kind of the beat master in terms of, I mean, he's a drummer, so like I'm a bass player by by trade kind of thing. So we kind of come in at different angles, I guess. When I finally saw, I saw Al drum using a, a drum kit and I was like, right, I get it now. Do you know what I mean? It's kind of like I can see why he's so hyper about his about his beats. I mean, like when he's putting a beat together, it's kind of like, he's almost like in a trance, do you know what I mean? You know, and it's sort of, and I'm, I'm kind of there suggesting things and popping things in, but a lot of the time it's kind of like Al just following, obviously, something to its, not its logical conclusion, but just kind of like working it, I guess, you know, and it, and it somehow becomes this, you know, different beast, and it is nice to, to, to push it and make it make it different, but still obviously try and make it work within, yeah, like the context of, this is going to be played on a sound system to a bunch of people dancing. You know, it's it, it's got to be funky. You know? Yeah, no, I see. Um, do you guys have um, quite defined roles when you're working together? To a certain degree, I guess. I mean, like I said, Al is, is the hyper beat sort of edit kind of you know, man. And I'm perhaps more kind of like sort of sound effects, sonics and, and kind of arrangement, I guess. That's always what I used to do even when I was in a band with kind of the guitarists in the band would come up with the main core riffs and then me and the drummer would kind of like arrange it out and and suggest ways of doing it differently or time things out so that they would happen differently so it's kind of like obviously at different times roles change but um you know a lot of the time it could be a, something that i've started on on my setup and then i take it to al and he sort of furthers it and then both of us together will then kind of like finish it off kind of thing you know so it's kind of like my bits are probably more chaotic and unfinished and then Al's kind of mindset comes in and takes it in a different way and then sets it into more of a kind of a finished inverted commas tune or whatever. You know? Yeah, and no, I see. And always complimentary. You guys aren't scrapping. Or well, <laughs> you know, it's an interesting thing, isn't it? Like collaboration. It's like, you know, I think we are often pulling in quite different directions, weirdly. But I think we're both happy. I mean, you know, it sounds like a bit of a cliche, but you kind of step back and go, right, okay, well, I really think it should be like this, but they obviously really don't. So I'll step back for a bit. And, and you both, as long as you keep both doing that fairly regularly, then I think you end up with something that you're both sort of happy with, you know? Like um, any relationship. Exactly, it is, it is. It's like, you know, it's like, it's knowing when to just sort of like keep quiet and let someone pursue what they think is going to work basically because it's like there's no point damning something before it's really started you know it's kind of like well I might think that that's not really the way this tune was supposed to go and then 10-15 minutes later I'm like ah right okay and then it's turned into something else so yeah no no I see so uh this is just the latest in a kind of long line of collaborations for you you sort of mentioned the band uh you were in that was sort of back in the mid 90s wasn't yeah, it yeah you were called the the monsoon the monsoon bassoon yeah. Yeah, yeah 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 and you yeah. had some popularity right we had some sort of you know cult inverted commas sort of like popularity i guess at the time it was quite a sort of um stuff like psychedelia and, and prog and 
even folk or anything else like that wasn't really the sort of done thing and we sounded like quite heavily like that I guess so we were kind of like hated we're not well we split we split audiences so you know like a lot of people the people that loved us really loved us and then a lot of people come and go like oh my god what's this horrible prog right nonsense, I see you know so you're saying you were kind of in opposition to what was popular like pretty much the time, I mean yeah. like another five or ten years later I think it would have been a different story because you know generally the, the indie fan now I think understands more or listens to more psychedelic music more of out there music you know at the time it was it was reasonably straight I mean you had obviously people like Radiohead and Mogwai and stuff like that who were massive who were pushing things in quite an interesting way but I guess we had like really obscure time signatures and we had we had flute and and clarinet and saxophone and stuff like this which you know like I think people hear a flute and they just think prog you know <laughs> uh, like Jethro Tull and, and and you know we had we had at one point three or four people at the NME really behind us which was quite weird because they'd always been very very sort of dismissive and then um there was a chap who ran Fierce Panda Records now I'm gonna forget his name really embarrassingly but he really got behind us and I'm um, actually put us on a on a Fierce Panda sort of compilation EP which at the time was quite a kind of quite a sort of big thing because it was kind of like you know Coldplay super furry animals you know sort of so many different bands had started on on fierce panda you know uh, or been given a leg up by fierce panda our track was i think the only track that didn't get played on radio you know so it's kind of like that's the kind of that's the kind of place we were, we were coming from but but then we got three singles of the week in a row from the enemy but then the same month that we got one of the singles of the week we got worst single of the week in the melody maker as well which is i've got proudly pasted into my little scrapbook you know pretty funny do you ever listen back to, to any of this stuff yeah a little bit man i mean like um one of my friends who i was in the band with is still very much involved in in experimental and sort of prog and and just interesting music so i mean he's still making really interesting stuff and i kind of think wow where would we have ended up if we'd have carried on but yeah, I listen back and I'm, I'm proud of what we did. It was kind of produced, our album was produced by someone that we really were obsessed by throughout our kind of younger years, a chap called Tim Smith from a band called Cardiacs. So really that was like a dream come true, having a production from him, you know. So that's, some, that's a real proud moment is the fact that we've got this, you know, hour's worth of music produced by one of our kind of heroes. And I think it sort of stands up still, you know. So, no, for yeah. sure. And um, were you listening to much dance and electronic music around this time? Yeah, yeah, definitely. It was hard to try and get any of that influence into the band, really, because it was, you know, it was guitars and drums and, and, and so on. But yeah, throughout, throughout that time, I was always, you know, raving and listening to music. And we all listened to it collectively. I mean, they, the band all loved things that I would bring, you know, like Aphex Twin and Orteca and all this kind of stuff. But other than just um, some of the sort of mathematical nature of the riffs, there wasn't really a way of bringing the sonics in because we didn't really have synths or drum machines or computers, you know. We were very much a traditional, inverted commas, mm. you know, musical instrument band. But yeah, always, always um, inspired by that stuff. You told us the first interview we ever did with you, actually, I think it was like back in 2007 or eight, that um, after the band split, you 
felt maybe a little bit lost and um, wasn't really until you got yourself on the music production course you mentioned mm. that you, you know, kind of found your way a little bit. Yeah. Was it just a case of really having something to like zero in on or sort of focus on? Yeah, I mean, as a as a bass player, I guess, you know, and not being a principal songwriter in the band, I was always more of a kind of accompanist slash arranger, you know, and loved it, but obviously had never really sort of taken the reins and, and equally my brushes with with musical technology i mean you know throughout my teenage years we'd all been you know we'd all been raving and we had a friend who had you know the setup kind of thing you know which obviously in those days it was much harder to put a setup together you know it was kind of like mixing desk various synths sampler you know kind of like and you need to get it all working together this kind of stuff so really I just sort of had a chance to vaguely tinker on it rather than sit in the driving seat and understand any of this stuff. I, I wasn't very technically technical minded at that time. So, um, yeah, I guess being forced to just, you know, I went and did this course at Bath Spa, Creative Music Technology. And that was when I first had my own computer and my own sort of software and, and then was, I guess, inspired by the fact that I knew that early grime and early dubstep was made on Fruity Loops. So I got myself a copy of Fruity Loops. I mean, did you go into the course with the aim of being a solo electronic music producer? I didn't really have, I don't think I had any, I mean, it was definitely inspired by the fact that I was going to Forward and hearing this music and then reading these interviews and it was like, you know, Benger and Scream were like 15 years old or something and they were making music on Fruity Loops and I was like, wow, what's this, what's this Fruity Loops? Maybe I can do that. It's like, you know, I'm, I'm sort of, you know, at the start of my journey here. So I'll start on something like that, which sounded quite simple and quick to use, which it was. So my early tunes were all made in that. And yeah, I guess that's sort of being at university gave me the time and the headspace, I guess, to kind of like to pursue that, you know, and also to be surrounded by people that were on a similar journey or whatever, you know, who would be able to help me, you know, if you're stuck on something, they can help you, you know, you can help them with certain things. You know, they were younger than me, but they had more technical knowledge, but, and I was older than them, but I had more sort of musical experience. So it was kind of like a good mixture of influences, I guess, you know? Yeah. Did you get a lot out of the course? Massive amounts. Yeah. It was absolutely brilliant. You know, highly recommend the course itself. And obviously the, the lecturers are, are great there. And they really inspire you to sort of think differently about music. I mean, again, I came from a slightly more, I was 27 when I started and, and had been listening to experimental music or avant-garde music through my work with the band. But I think a lot of the younger guys had never heard stuff like that. You know, it had never thought about concepts in terms of outside of just making beats or making a track or making dance music or whatever. So, yeah, I mean, the, the course definitely, um, and it develops every year and they, you know, they've got brilliant equipment and, and, yeah, it's just kind of like pursuing sonic art, I guess. Yeah, you know? sure. Yeah. Was it around this time that you were also working in record shops? I know you'd had like a, a history of working in record yeah, shops. Yeah, yeah. Not, I mean, not at that time. I was, I'd was i worked in London when I was in the band at a, at a second-hand record shop, which I'm working at again now, funnily oh, enough. Oh, right. Yeah, okay, after yeah. a long gap. Yeah, so, uh, yeah. Which one? It's, it's had various names over the years. Record and Tape Exchange, then it's Music and Video Exchange. Now it's officially Music and Goods Exchange, as the format's changed. You know, but it has been there literally since, like, 1968, you know. So it's the oldest kind of, like, you know, second-hand record shop that's still going in London. It's a total sort of weird institution, really, but an amazing place to get inspired by music because you're working with kind of people who are sort of experts and, and massive 
fans and record diggers of of just every sort of different type of music really so it's a very uh very cool place to be if you're in, into music you know yeah and i assume you're still sort of hardcore into digging yeah i love records i always have done do you know what i mean and it's kind of one of the few things that i have much sort of deep knowledge about or whatever so it's kind of like it's my sort of passion and yeah so obviously living in london and working at these shops is it's just brilliant because different stuff comes through the door every day you know there's you never know what's going to come in and there's collections of every style of music and and um yeah you, you know you get your chance to see and listen to some some amazing records basically sure yeah and what is it that um sort of appeals to you about sifting through records i mean you've talked about it in quite glowing terms in the past i just wonder what it was about that headspace that really like does yeah. it for you it's one of those weird things isn't it it's like an itch that you kind of can't scratch i mean like the actual process of digging can sometimes feel like work i guess i mean like through the shop as well you meet quite a lot of record dealers and people that you know travel the world doing this kind of stuff and it's like a lot of the time they're like you know it's like it sometimes isn't a fun process it's like anything isn't it you know you're, you're kind of yeah you're going into dusty basements or warehouses or junk shops or whatever thrift stores but it's when you find interesting stuff it's it's kind of amazing really it's kind of like you know I always sort of see it as you know these records are, are like capsules of, of energy and information and you're you're flicking through all these different ones that of every single one of those records has had a whole story around it of how it came to be made you know mm. completely insane when you think about it you know and there it is physically in front of you and then you know you could go through a hundred things that you don't recognize or whatever or you don't you don't want and then something will jump out at you you know and it's kind of like i guess it's just that kind of like that fun and, and excitement of not knowing what's there, you know? Chasing that dragon. Absolutely, absolutely. What's the general feeling among kind of London record shops at the moment as to like the, the health of the, the scene, if you like? What's the, what's the mood like? It's, it's a funny one because obviously the place where I work has been there for many, many years and, and kind of like, you know, you hear this, the, heard the sort of the, the cliche of people in record stores that, you know, hey, every day is record store day and all this kind of thing you know it's kind of like you know we're, we'll kind of be there sort of like regardless really of, of trends but obviously it's really interesting seeing the way things kind of change as well so I mean you know you find a lot of young people now who are getting their first record player you know and so they're coming in and buying their first records and so and they're buying records that say their mum and dad had or you know it's kind of like it's kind of different because obviously when I was there last time you didn't really get those kind of people um this was a long you know this was like I guess mid to late 90s different type of person was buying records then you know and kids inverted commas were obviously buying CDs do you know what I mean and then obviously they went on to files but now they're going back to records again you know because it's like it's slightly more romantic it's slightly more it's like oh my mum and dad used to have these or you know you get you quite quite a lot of kids come in and buy some records and then say do you know anywhere you can buy a record player around here do you know what I mean you know so it's kind of like that's that's the kind of way around it is now I think you know it's so like, you've seen good numbers of uh, young people come through then yeah definitely yeah. and it's, it's it's funny you know you you know there's all the all the young young kids coming in to buy you know sort of like grime and dubstep and stuff I mean for me that's quite interesting because that's a scene that I was involved in but now it's kind of like you don't see those records much anymore so when there's a big collection in you know and it's a whole different strata of people it's young middle class kids coming in and buying it rather than the original grime kids coming and buying it because they're off doing something else do you know what I mean you know so it's kind of yeah it's the cycles of life you know <laughs>
So it's been covered, obviously, a lot before, but um, it's kind of a really integral part of your story. So I wonder if you could kind of tell us where you were when sort of dubstep and grime started filtering through to you and kind of what that experience did to you. Well, I mean, I guess the first place that I heard it, I guess before it was even called dubstep, I mean, so it was kind of like... It was just because a friend had recommended to go to Forward, basically, a Plastic People. I mean, Plastic People is obviously no longer no longer running, which is a real shame, I think, for, for sort of London clubs and everything. Really, at that time, you know, in terms of sound systems, it was, it was just an incredible sound system, really. I hadn't heard music of that volume and quality really since kind of like... I guess sort of drum and bass kind of like the era I mean I'm wearing a t-shirt today sort of metalheads kind of style where it's like it's extreme volume but it's extremely clear sound and it's extremely futuristic music and it's you don't know what who it's by you don't know what it is it's kind of like this totally mysterious mass you know that's what I got really when I sort of like entered into into forward I mean you know maybe only 20 people 30 people there but just sort of like a wall of of sound and kind of and and like this mysterious mysterious stuff really i guess we started going just on the cusp when it was turning from garage into what would be called i guess dubstep and i remember people kind of like whispering one night and it was like oh you know digital mystics are coming down and playing and like hatch has been playing it and i remember seeing hatcher a couple of times and i didn't I, I i almost didn't get it the first couple of times i was like i kind of like this but it's kind of really weird and it's wonky and it's strange and it's there's no sort of like discernible breakdowns or sort of you know melodies or you know it's kind of like what is this but I kind of stuck with it a couple of times I was like and then yeah by about the third time I went it was like wow this is this is bonkers yeah that was I guess that was the era of of, of Scream and Loafer and all these different people making tunes that I guess yeah still didn't it wasn't really defined so it was very free and very I guess for me I just I just couldn't get enough of it basically and, and was was hooked in terms of like a sound and in terms of even just like the dub plate culture and you know all these dub plates were getting played you know you'd look over the booth and every single dub plate would be a transition dub plate so it's kind of like what's this transition place you know like um it's like right okay it's a cutting house well what's a cut i know what a cutting house is but okay they're making dub plates and it's but they're all from around there you know so it's like this is where hatch used to cut dub plates and so therefore everybody else would cut dub plates there and it was like you know, you get this quality of sound and, and they were making their tunes, I guess, to be heard down at Forward. You know, you'd hear tunes. That was my first experience of hearing a tune getting broken at a club, you know. So it's kind of like, maybe on very small scale, it might only be like 100 or 150 people maximum going crazy to a tune. But when you see hear that tune come in a couple of times, you're like, what is it? What is it? And, you know, I remember there was a tune by Toasty called The Knowledge, which was like, you know, really, really massive at the time. And I remember hearing that for the first time down there. And then Scuba was on the dance floor and he was like, just sign this, mate, just sign this. And it was kind of like, wow, you know, I've never really seen that happen where it was like, I love this tune. Everybody loves this tune. It's really fresh and he's going to put it out. Wicked. Do you know what I mean? You know, so it's like, yeah, quite mind blowing. What were some of the conversations on the dance floors like around that time? Uh, you know, with a lack of information, a lot of sort of like, uh, you know, mystery surrounding this music. 
It was, was very it like mysterious. a case of like sharing information, or I guess there was a bunch of us that were probably you know because we were outside the scene. You know, there was the people who were making it and their friends, and the people that came from the kind of more garage angle of of Hatcher and Crazy D and and Croydon and stuff. We were kind of like the kind of the new converts, I guess. Who who um, yeah. So we struck up. It was it was like a little gang. There was friendships. It was you know it was like a little tribe really. But I mean, in terms of you know. You didn't really talk on the dance floor because it wasn't possible because it was so loud. So you would be in this dark room for two or three hours or four hours at a time sometimes. And that's what I used to love about it, really. I didn't really used to go out to drink. I used to go out to, to dance. And the great thing about Plastic People was, you know, you were on the dance floor. That was it. The curtain was across. It was dark. Super, yeah. You know, the music's, the music's blaring. If you wanted to go and have a drink, you go out and have a drink outside, and it's kind of like it was separate. It was like you know you're there. It was almost like you know without being cheesy, it was like it was like going to sort of church or something. In the same way that that, that Mala talks about DMZ, it's like it's meditate on base weight. You know, it's kind of you come to kind of meditate almost. You come to kind of lose yourself. You know, obviously as the club became more popular, it did become more. It was a Friday night Shoreditch club. It would get very busy. It would get a little bit rowdier. The music got a little bit rowdier as well with the kind of grimy stuff. And and so it did change. You know, it, the vibe changed many times over the years, you know. But but I used to like it when when there was a little bit more room, I guess, and it was more about the meditation side. It started to get very jump up, I guess, at one point, which is still a, it's great energy, but it's a different kind of energy, and, and people were getting people were getting quite rowdy and pushing each other. It was almost like a mosh pit, and you could see how it kind of went into that EDM-ish, bro-steppy-ish, more male characteristics of like we're we're gonna like push each other on the dance floor, and you know it's kind of like, and I guess that's probably when I not not lost interest. It was just sort of like, well, okay, that's that's kind of going that way. Yeah, it sort of definitely runs counter to the original. Yeah, you could yeah. see other people going different ways, you know. And was it at Forward you met Sam, as in Sam Shackleton? Sam, yeah, well, we started going to Forward together, but we met through someone actually at the record shop, so a mutual friend that I was working with. So we all started going out together around that time. And yeah, Forward was, was our little kind of spot, really. I then moved away to study, but I kept coming back. And so I'd meet up and we'd go to the club and then, you know, we'd be listening to the radio in between. And then, and Sam was making some of his own music at the time. He'd been doing some some sort of like strange rhythm sort of experiments on little drum machines and stuff with a friend. But then he'd also been doing stuff, I think it was in Reason then. So he'd sort of like, just sort of like trying to make beats and, and I, you know, we really liked them and I was sort of trying to make a few beats on my Fruity Loop stuff and that's that's kind of how the Skull Disco thing happened, I guess, is is we were directly inspired by the club and by the records that were coming out and it was like, well, you know, I mean, I thought his tunes were good enough, he probably thought mine were good enough and, and so it was like, let's kind of do it kind of thing. You know? Yeah, and I understand. You've talked before about like a particular vision or like Sam had this like idea in his mind that he wanted to kind of get towards or achieve like how would you define what that was like did you guys talk about it much before the label to be honest not not really it was more like it was just kind of like you know Sam's got these tunes and and had an idea of of obviously the artwork and the name you know that's something that I think obviously Sam could probably talk about better than me but it's kind of like it's very representative of Sam's mindset, I think, in the sense that 
it included obviously cosmic and mythical and tribal kind of references, but also a bit of a pun in the name of Skull Disco, you know, it's kind of like, you know, so it's kind of like School Disco, you know, but like, yeah, I guess, I guess he had Zeke Clough doing the artwork and um, that always meant that it was going to get noticed because it's, you know, such amazing artwork. But I, you know, that that I can comfortably say that was Sam's influence. Do you know what I mean? That was his his thing that he'd put together. They were friends from putting fanzines together on punk and noise music, sort of years years before I came from somewhere completely different. You know, but we just met over the the kind of the the, the music that was you know getting played at, at at Forward. You know, so it's actually been almost ten years since the first twelve inch came out. There might actually be people listening who are sort of not aware of the label how would you sort of give a quick summary of the vibe you were kind of going for with the music i guess i mean if you listen to sam's music i guess from then and up to now you can really hear his sort of rhythmic vision i guess i mean we were there was a tune by mala called conference um mala of digital mystics and at the time that was kind of like you know, definitely one of the things that we inspired to, which was this kind of like crazy sort of tribal, dubby, but ravey kind of music. But it sounded, you know, it sounded ancient, it sounded modern, you know, and I think I think Sam kind of captures that really in the stuff that he makes. For me personally, I guess I was pursuing, I mean, I was just trying to make tunes, I think, that sounded like what I was hearing, you know. So, mm. I mean, we were, I was really into scream and code nine and vexed as well so that kind of coming from a slightly more noisy kind of background so i guess the early stuff was it was just experiments uh, uh, you know in in that sound and and probably quite basic compared to other stuff that was around it wasn't we didn't know what we were doing production wise we didn't know what we were doing technology wise so much it was very much just like on a laptop using what we had in front of us and obviously it's developed from there, but it was, uh, yeah, I guess, <sighs> mythical, cosmic bass music. No, yeah, it works for me. <laughs> <laughs> you guys famously limited the amount of releases that you put out. Looking back on that, do you think that was kind of the right decision? Do you think you could have released more music or did it have to exist just, you know, in that very I set? Yeah, I think it had kind of run its course. I mean, by... By about release six or seven on the label anyway, I mean, I was, my DJ career had taken off, so I was DJing all over the place every weekend and actually was finding it harder to finish tunes, whereas Sam was really just sort of like heads down in the studio the whole time, so it ended up being more like his kind of vehicle then for his tunes. And I think he had done that, you know, we'd managed to involve a few of the people that we liked in some remixes, so people like T++, and you know Badawi, and so on. So you know we we'd done a release with me and Peverlist, and then there'd been a couple of just Sam Shackleton releases. So I think I think you know it was it was Sam really that kind of pulled the plug. I mean I probably would have just carried on, you know, in terms of like if we had tunes, keep putting them out. But I think it was totally the right thing to do. I think, you know, he needed to go his way. Me and Sam met in the middle on a certain sound, but but we had very different tastes, really. Do you know what I mean? You know, so I think it was right for us to... We met for a little bit in the middle and then we kind of went on our own ways again, you know? Yeah, and I understand. So there was some crossover as well with you starting Apple Pips, mm. which um, I guess came up at a time where people were moving away a little bit from the standard dubstep template and were going into, like, 
other sounds yeah. being influenced by other things. Yeah. Was a little bit like the inspiration behind the label trying to capture some of this, you know, excitement and creativity that was coming out of those uh, fusions, Definitely. if you like. Definitely, yeah. I mean, like, you know, for me, it was a, it was a very exciting time in terms of traveling the world, meeting lots of different people, you know, like meeting different hubs of producers in different cities, taking this music that either my friends were making in Bristol or, or you know, the people that I connected with across the world and taking their music and playing it around the world. You know, it was an amazing thing. And being given the opportunity to start a label, I guess, by ST Holdings. I mean, it was it was through through Martin, the producer, um, sort of having some tracks, and um, you know, it, he'd been sort of saying like, "Oh, you know, I love Skull Disco. You know, maybe we could do something on Skull Disco." And it was like, "Well, we're not really doing Skull Disco, but maybe I'm thinking of doing something myself." You know, and he's like, well, "Right, cool. Well, I've got these tracks. Have a listen." And so it kind of started quite naturally from that. But then it was, yeah, it was nice to have a vehicle for tunes that, that I was either getting passed and then playing, you know, it was, um, and yeah, that I guess the styles, you know, coming out of, of bass music and dubstep and kind of like opening people's ears to other things as well, you know, so it was people, kept, people were very, people who were into that sound were very into that sound, you know, and then it started to sort of fracture and I think that was a really interesting time to be able to kind of, play a broad spectrum of different different genres i guess to people that had perhaps just been listening to kind of 140 stuff for for quite a few years you know and and some of them really appreciated it some of them didn't but it was kind of like yeah it was it was a, a fun time i mean do you think the um original spirit of the label kind of persisted over the years yeah yeah i mean like did um, your aims change at all yeah i suppose i was djing i was djing a lot and i guess my the tunes that i was putting out came from a sort of like a a tighter circle of people i guess that i was living with and interacting with down in bristol you know so it was kind of like we always had our own funny little scene down there in terms of even within the bristol thing me and my mates were kind of like we were sat on the on the peripherals you know we we were part of it but we were also sort of you know we we didn't we didn't fit into one sort of style or sound really you know so you had people like pinch pursuing his thing you had people like pev pursuing his thing um and we had our own funny little gang of people as well in the apple pips thing which was yeah i mean i'm proud of the variety of the music that we put out and i'm proud of the fact that we tried to play that when we went out you know Mm. So around the time of the label starting was when you started jumping in the studio with lots of different people, like Pev, Gatekeeper, Ramadan Man, October, Al. Were you finding that all of these partnerships were kind of uh, different and distinct in their own way? Like, would your role change through the different partnerships? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I guess, like, for me, you know, it was it was fun just to go and, and kind of vibe with people in different studios, you know? So it's kind of like... I've always found other people's energy quite interesting to kind of go and react with, interact with, sorry. And yeah, each one of those sort of collaborations had had different different fun points about it. You know, I, I loved working with October. That's got a certain vibe. His studio's got a different sound, you know, and it's obviously about what you do around it as well kind of thing, you know. So sort of like just listening to music, chatting, watching a film, hanging out, you know, it's like, you know, 
that's a beautiful thing to be sort of involved in and each one of those ones brought me different things or whatever you know so yeah it was it was a it was a it was a fun time of uh, you know some quite quite sort of interesting stuff got made I think you know you've described yourself as a, a tinkerer in the past do you think collaboration is kind of a way to uh, get around that sort of focus yeah, you a little bit definitely yeah I mean I'm you know I'm lucky to have a lot of friends who are very sort of single-minded and pursue their sort of their sonic goal and they and they I mean I'm sure they'd all probably say that they were unfocused sometimes but to me they seem like they've got they've, they've got like a vision and they've got kind of like I guess yeah ways of working in the studio that perhaps I don't you know so I think I, I sort of come in as a a different influence in there you know and and kind of like you know whether it was bringing different things to sample or jamming in different ways on the synths or you know I think everybody always gets something slightly different out of it you know it's like you both work in a way that perhaps you normally wouldn't work you know yeah so that's 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 the strength of it for me you know slightly cliche question but is there like a dream collaboration that you would uh, want to get stuck into god blimey a collaboration it's hard isn't it because it's like I think there's some people that that definitely shouldn't collaborate you know there's some people that just uh, you know should always be doing stuff you know 100% themselves you know it's like yeah. me, me and me and Sam Shackleton tried to collaborate once I think and it just didn't work you know and it's kind of like that makes sense do you know what I mean it's like you know he's doing his thing you know but um I don't know I mean I'd, I'd like to I'd like to see how Aphex Twin works in the studio, but there's obviously no way you'd ever want to try and collaborate. That's ridiculous. But like, you know, even if I could just sort of peering over the Yeah, shoulder, exactly. Yeah. Just sort of like fly the wall style. That'd be pretty cool. So the records you've released over the last five years have been kind of full of little stylistic twists and turns, if you like. I don't think we'd be able to sort of pin you down to one style. Has this been roughly reflective of how you've been DJing as well, with those two things being kind of in lockstep, would you say? Yeah, to a degree. I mean, I think um, DJing-wise, you know, I, I started to realise once I had gone through the phase of letting the crowds know that I was going to kind of play what I wanted to play, having a bit of backlash from from certain places where it was like, well, you are, you're not playing dubstep anymore, so, you know. But having the freedom, also getting more bookings in places for, for longer time and, and the more European style of, right, you're playing for three hours and, and you really can do what you want. You know, obviously certain places, there's more pressure to sort of keep the dance floor going or to sort of fit in or whatever, but then it's kind of realising that actually after an hour and a half, you can just sort of stop and just play exactly what you want really, you know, and I kind of realised that. And um, yeah, I mean, with the exception of, I guess I've never really tried to make drum and bass, but it's kind of like that was that was what was so fun is is realizing that you can you can stop and you can just play some ambient stuff for ten minutes. You can play some, go into half an hour of of drum and bass. You can go into hip hop. You can go into reggae, whatever you know. So yeah, I guess you know it's broadly reflective of those things. You know. Yeah, I mean, how would you sort of define the last few years? Has it been a case of kind of following your nose and seeing what was exciting you at the time? Yeah, I mean, I guess musically, you know, there's there's certain people that, you know, I will always sort of play tunes by, do you know what I mean? So it's like, and, and I will always go to for, for inspiration. So whether it's, you know, from the bass-ish music scene, whether it's Pev and Liberty or Cowton and all that lot, or, or kind of like Pinch and the stuff that he does, or 
2562 made up sound. You know, these are sort of core things that I'll always go back to and that I'll always play because they're always making something interesting. And then, you know, people like even like Addison Groove or something, you know, it's like, I guess I'm lucky to to have known some, some very idiosyncratic and very sort of like individual musicians. And so I always go back to their stuff and sort of listen to what they're doing now and, and try and draw inspiration from that. And then, you know, within that, it's the stuff that I'm, yeah, making myself and that my friends close to me are making, you know? So, mm. I mean, does it feel less necessary these days to sort of pin down and define what you do as a DJ and producer? Yeah, I like to like to kind of leave it open, really. You know, it's like try not to plan too much. And, you know, I mean, I don't DJ out half as much as I used to, you know, so it's kind of different now. It's kind of more, it's, it's um, I guess it's getting exciting again for the reason that it's like, less familiar whereas at one point I was playing two or three times a week you know like week in week out now it's kind of more like all oh, right I'm getting the chance to play some records again this is going to be fun what shall I put in the bag you know and I'm getting a bit more bold I guess do you know what I mean you know and also just just enjoying it a lot again you know yeah it's something we were talking about in the little um three cuts film we did a couple of years ago where we were kind of discussing the relationship between um releases and gigs have you still kind of continue to see a direct correlation between these things yeah to a certain degree i mean obviously we've been working on the kind of like the the rns sort of album stuff for quite a while and so when you're working on a project like that you know you, you hope for sort of gigs and stuff straight away but obviously it needs it needs time to kind of germinate and kind of take hold out in the world and i think that's kind of what you forget is that you know yeah, you've got to spend your time making the music, then you've got to spend your time putting the music out there. And then and then there's also just a sort of a gestation period where obviously people are listening to it at home, people are passing it to their mates, people are listening to it on their headphones, you know, and it's kind of like, you know, you need to give it some months just to kind of settle in, I think, you know. So it's kind of like, yeah, yeah, in terms of getting music out there and gigs, yeah, it's still obviously that's the main, that's the main thing that's going to affect your your sort of like your schedule or whatever you know but um yeah but we're sort of starting to get things with all with 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 second story and apple blim and yeah we'll see how that goes over the next six months and obviously we're starting to put together the sort of like the the next album and stuff like that so hopefully it will just kind of it will grow and we'll get more opportunity to sort of play as that happens so we're talking as well in the film about this idea or aim of yours to achieve a slightly better balance between your professional life and social life. Is that something you feel like you've got to a good place? Is like it an ongoing problem yeah. for people in, in the yeah. industry? It's getting there. I mean, like, you know, in terms of, I mean, I've just recently moved back to London kind of thing. And that's sort of mainly inspired by the fact that we've got this record deal with with RNS um so therefore you know we've got work to do over the next few years so Alec had already moved up here a year or more ago so it, you know it's directly inspired by that but um yeah it ha it's been strange leaving the kind of bosom of Bristol as well and the kind of like the friends and the producers that you know down there you know so it, I think creatively I still haven't sort of like found my flow again here I've been here sort of a few months now but I, luckily I've got quite a backlog of music, which is kind of like ready to, to roll kind of thing, you know, so yeah. which was made in a quite a intense burst in Bristol just before I left. So it's kind of like, hopefully I can kind of try and get that out into the world. And then by the time that's out there, I can be more settled here and more creative here. Do you like living in London generally? 
Yeah, I mean, it's been a bit of a mind blower. I mean, like, it's because it's been so long. I mean, I lived here for, yeah, eight or nine years when I was quite young, sort of like 18 to sort of 26, 27. So um, it's a completely different place, I feel, now. It's still the same amount of energy in the same different sort of cultures and, and so on. But, um, yeah, I, I kind of thought, oh, yeah, it'll be a breeze. I know what London's like, you know, I remember. And it's like, whoa, it's it's very different, you know, um, especially when you've been somewhere like Bristol for so long, which is such a sort of close-knit, very laid-back, you know, very chilled place. So, yeah, sure. Yeah. I'm sure people continue to uh, associate you with Bristol. Yeah, yeah, it's weird. It's weird. I still don't, I don't feel like a Londoner again, whereas when I lived here before, I definitely felt like Hackney was kind of like my home. That's where I'd lived the longest in my life kind of thing. So it was kind of like, yeah, Hackney's home. But now I, I definitely felt that Bristol was home. So it's, who knows? I'll, I'll give it some time. Now there's certain aspects of, of of London life that I'm I'm sort of like concerned by. And then there's others that I'm very enthused by, as ever, I suppose. Do you know what yeah, I mean? You know? Yeah, and I understand. So um, how's the upcoming months looking for you? Like, what have we got? I mean, I've got a couple of releases, just... Um, got my first release strangely on temper records so even though i did the mix for them many moons ago um, i'm releasing something on temper this summer they're like three tracks something a bit different one of the tracks got played by scuba on his essential mix so you can check it out there if you want to chat a track called avebury and then some kind of weird sort of noisy stuff on the b-sides kind of droney kind of like ambienty kind of weird stuff and then i've got a remix coming out on K7 of 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 Will Saw around the same time I think and then yeah I've got these bunch of tunes basically that I'm just sort of in talks with various people about putting out you know so really it's trying to get a lot of that out over the summer try and write as much as possible with with second story for our for our second album and yeah we've got various kind of like festivals and live shows we're playing at Free Rotation which obviously is is a, a mega one for us I mean I've still not actually been, so all my friends have been, and most of my musical sort of compatriots have all played there and, and raved about how good it is. So that was really amazing to get that offer come in. That was that was like a real kind of like, oh yeah, we must be doing something right kind of thing, you know. Um, so we've got that. We've got a couple other things around Europe. There will be another fabric thing at some point, but yeah, just and then I mean I've started lots of new music since I've been up here, but um, and it's quite different again. So hopefully trying to finish some of that over the summer as well. You mentioned the uh, Tampa compilation there. Have you listened back to that in the last couple of years? It's just, um, you know, I think for many people, uh, it kind of really captured the spirit of the times, you know, real seminal mix. Yeah, I just wondered yeah. what your relationship was. Yeah, I haven't listened to it in a while, actually. Uh, I think I've been a bit scared to over the last year or two in case I just sort of think like, Oh no, it's never. I'm never gonna, never gonna have it as good as that again. You know, because it, because it was, it was like a really exciting time, and I was getting given all this music by all these crazy producers, and I'm in a slightly different place now. I'm more kind of like, it's more about me trying to make music now. Whereas at that point, I wasn't even. I was, I was making the odd thing, but at that point, I really, really was a DJ thing for me. At that time, it was like, you know, I was very enthused by the Bristol music. You know, it was like I was getting past tunes by. Rob Smith, you know, sort of like one of one of the sort of originators and Pinch and Pev and 2562 and all these different things. So it's like, yeah, you know, it's a different time. It's a different kind of genre almost. And, and I guess now I'm more just trying to concentrate on 
music that comes from my head rather than other people's kind of thing, you know? But yeah, I think it stands up to the test of time and, and I think it's a testament to the music that was getting made then, you know? 